add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a Democratic strategist and a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can read my column in the presidential on the presidential race in The Hill every Monday. It's up there now if you want to look at it uh, at uh, muckrack.com front slash Brad dash Bannon. That's M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K dot com front slash Brad dash Bannon. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. If you want to learn more about me and my political polling company, or if you have any suggestions of or ideas for Deadline DC, uh, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My hashtag is Brad Bannon, all one word. Welcome to all of you who are watching. uh, Welcome to all of you who are listening. And if you want to watch too, uh, you can see the show on periscope.tv front slash Brad dash Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Paul Lisnick. A political and legal analyst for WGN TV in Chicago. In the second half hour, uh, we'll have, as usual, our provocative progressive political panel. Today, the guests on the panel are Bina Vankatraman, the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, and progressive activist Mark J. Grimaldi. Paul Lisnick has been a political analyst for WGN-TV in Chicago since 2008. He appears on all the station's newscasts discussing the political and legal issues of the day. He is the host of the Political Report Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Central Time, on which he interviews the leading political figures uh, in the city, uh, in Chicago, in Illinois, and and throughout the country. Paul's appeared on a number of TV network news shows, including CNN and Court TV. He is the author of 13 books, including The Hidden Jury and his first work of fiction, Assume Guilt. Welcome back to Deadline DC, Paul. Glad to have you. Brad, always good to be with you. It's a busy time. Okay, uh, let's start with uh, today's Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court uh, voted to overrule a, a Louisiana law which had very restrictive abortion uh, uh, requirements against abortion. What happened there? 
So, in fact, it was pretty much the same law that the court dealt with in 2016 that came from Texas. And that year, the court decided it was the test for abortion cases is called undue burden. Uh, is it does does the restriction present an undue burden on a woman? And back in 2016, the court said, yes, it does. But the key factor in that decision was Justice Anthony Kennedy, who has since retired and been replaced by conservative Brett Kavanaugh. So the reason Louisiana essentially sent the same law up was the hope that with the two Trump appointees of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, that would be two votes against it with the loss of Kennedy. They would get that provision uh, found to be constitutional. And essentially, for the purpose of Louisiana, it would have almost shut down abortions. It would have let like one doctor left who met the provisions. You have to live within 30 miles of a uh, of an abortion clinic and and have entry privileges. There was only one guy who could do it. Bottom line today is that the Supreme Court, um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch did what what people expected them to do. But it was Chief Justice John Roberts who, for the third time uh, in these last couple of weeks, sided with the liberals uh, but not because he was being liberal about it. Essentially, what Chief Justice Roberts said was, you know, we decided this four years ago. That's precedent. That's called stare decisis. And even though I don't agree with the decision, it is the decision of the court. So I stand by it. He uh, finally he just in a um, uh, in, in an additional piece, he wrote essentially telling other states, you know, there is a way that this could be found constitutional. This provision was just the same as Texas. So it's not. But uh, basically, a message to states was, give it a shot if you want. You might just be successful. You might just be successful. I understand Justice Roberts' uh, uh, call uh, for, uh, what's they call that, uh, stare decisis. Stare decisis, probably. And basically, he said that since the court decided this issue in Texas four years ago, uh, there was no reason to do any different, different in this poll. But, you know, as you've said, this is the third time in the last few weeks that Justice Roberts has, uh, agree, you know, has come out uh, for, um, you know, liberal decisions on the court. And he's joined the court's four-person uh, uh, liberal uh, minority to make these decisions. So it must be more than a story decisive because this is not the first time he's cast uh, a liberal vote on a decision. Well, Brad, I think that's insightful because I think what it really is about for him is the legacy of the Roberts Court. This will forever be known as the Roberts Court, uh, as every chief justice, essentially. It's their legacy. And I think he's very cognizant of that. Um, I should say, by the way, that up until this case, Roberts has essentially voted to support every abortion restriction that the court has faced. So this really was an about-face turn for him. But again, he didn't get there based on principle. He got there based on precedent. And so maybe that's convenient and it just worked for him. But um, we have you know, there's other abortion cases working their way up. Remember, the way uh, that people who, who want to get rid of abortion approach this, there's never going to be a case really where the court just says, well, Roe versus Wade is over is overturned. It's not going to happen that way. It could, but it's not going to happen that way. It's going to be case by case, restriction by restriction. For example, the heartbeat case, there's stuff working its way up that depending on the direction of the court, it could in effect wipe out the possibility of abortions, even though the court never actually overturns Roe versus Wade. Okay, let me ask you about another uh, legal issue before we go to the break. Uh, last week, the Trump administration filed a petition for the Supreme Court to essentially destroy Obamacare, uh, which is ironic because uh, I think on Thursday, the House of Representatives is going to vote on a bill that would expand uh, Medicare. Uh, what, t tell us about the uh, Trump 
petition on Obamacare. So to many, it seems tone deaf that the Trump administration would, uh, in the middle of a pandemic, submit a brief which says the Obama, Obamacare should be found completely unconstitutional. The basis for the argument is, look, the court has already said that the mandate, the, the, the penalty, which Chief Justice Roberts called a tax, which is what saved Obamacare years ago, uh, that mandate is gone for people who don't buy insurance. So the argument, again, coming out of Texas and other states, is without the mandate, none of the other pieces of Obamacare can stand. It was all premised on the mandate. Well, there's another group of cases working up the same time to the court, led by California as the name case, which basically says, no, Obamacare can continue with or without the, uh, the mandate being in place. That's what the court is going to have to face. Remember, with Chief Justice Roberts, who saved Obamacare the first time around, and what I said was what he did, which was to say, um, he, had he seen the mandate as a penalty, Obamacare would not have been saved. He said it's not a penalty, it's a tax. And as a tax, Congress has the power to tax, Obamacare is constitutional. That's what saved it. What he'll do this time around when faced with this if Roberts thinks of his legacy and is a bit more pragmatic perhaps than others, I really think at this point, Brad, and I think you'd agree, Obamacare is so ingrained in our system after over 10 years of being around that to simply say, ah, you're right, it's gone, is difficult. It's also a huge election issue, which of course steps into your world as well, because if I'm a Republican senator who's up for re-election and I'm one of the, you know, one who's in trouble, Susan Collins, among others, do I really want to be in a situation where Obamacare might be knocked out and Republicans have no replacement for it other than the president saying, we will protect your pre-existing conditions, except guess what? If the Supreme Court rules in the Trump administration's favor, pre-existing conditions will not be protected. Okay. Is it uh, fair to say that uh, Justice Roberts, uh, he obviously, part of his job as chief justice is to be concerned about the legacy of the court. Uh, do you think, uh, will Justice Roberts become the new swing court, a uh, swing vote on the Supreme Court, replacing Justice Kennedy well, in that role? Here's what he won't become. He won't become the new Justice David Souter, right? Uh, David Souter, who was appointed by Bush, turned into this flaming liberal. And basically, ever since then, Republicans refer to they will never get suitored again. That's not John Roberts. John Roberts is a tried and true conservative. However, what you say, Brad, is true. He understands legacy. He has a sense of pragmatism, you know, behind him. And um, remember, in the same-sex marriage case, he didn't support that. It was Kennedy who saved it. But I do think he feels the extra pressure now that um, he is the only person left who even has the possibility of being a swing vote. Because even Gorsuch, who voted to protect LGBTQ transgender job rights, he didn't do that because he believed in their rights. He did it because he used. He looked at the words. He's a he's a he's a, a contextualist. He looked at the word. Um, sex in the in the 1964 law and just said it just includes them. So he too didn't get there on any grand way. So the bottom line is Chief Justice Roberts concerned about legacy, um, but at the same time I think you you know don't expect that shoes might drop in the other direction from time to time okay. because he is a conservative. We're going to go to break now. When we get back with our uh, radio audience, uh, we will continue our discussion with Paul Lisnick, who is a legal and political analyst. is Paul Lisnick, uh, who is a political and legal analyst for WGN-TV. 
Uh, Paul, uh, take off your legal analyst uh, hat and put on your political analyst uh, hat, or maybe you have a special tie for that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, the other big news uh, over the weekend uh, was the New York Times reported that the uh, Russian Secret Service uh, Agency uh, had put a bounty on uh, the heads of American troops in Afghanistan, and they were paying the Taliban uh, money for every American soldier they killed. Uh, the White House denied the president ever knew anything about this, uh, but uh, the Times reported that it was part of a CIA briefing. Other sources confirmed that. Uh, this seems to me is, is a major betrayal of American troops. So the only way the president gets out of this one clean is if somehow it's proven that that this never happened, there were no such allegations. But it's been confirmed by enough places. And in fact, we know the governments of, of uh, England and others have been briefed on it. So clearly there's something here. What I find amazing is this is a tough one for even Trump supporters to kind of defend because the president says I was never briefed, nor was the vice president. Well, um, if he was never briefed orally, then the odds are it was in his daily briefing notebook. And of course, the odds are he didn't read it. So it raises sort of questions for him to say, I didn't know anything about it. Well, okay, why didn't you? You're the commander in chief, so you should have read about it, been told about it. This is yeah. important. Somebody should have made sure you knew. Uh, and yet you didn't do it. So either you're lying and you did know and you haven't done anything except to invite Putin to join the G7 and make it to G8. Uh, or... Um, you did know about it and you just didn't do anything about it. And that raises questions of, of competence at, at, at a minimum. So you have to raise. And there's one last piece of this. If, if all of it's true, he didn't know anything about it, never heard about it. It's all news to him. Read about it in The New York Times. OK, it's been over 48 hours. What has he done since then? So we're waiting. By this point, he should have said, I've called Putin on the phone. Of course, Putin has denied it. And this president tends to say, well, President Putin was very strong in saying he didn't do it. I'm sure he didn't. You know, that that could be the next step. But um, essentially, he's been silent about this, whether he knew about it back in March or not. I, I think it's fairly hard to believe he didn't know. He is the commander in chief. Yeah, this is the uh, see no evil, uh, hear no evil, do evil, evil presidency. Uh, over the weekend, um, the president, of course, was busy on Twitter. I guess he got bored uh, between uh, hitting the golf course a couple times. Uh, but uh, he retreated a video of uh, a group of uh, people riding around in golf carts. Uh, one of them was uh, chanting white power. Now, the White House explanation was that the president didn't hear the audio. Um, he doesn't hear or see anything, apparently. Uh, but it seems to me, given the, the, you know, the racial atmosphere uh, in this country now, the high levels of tension and the uh, movement towards uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, this is an incredibly inappropriate video for the president to be sharing. So the phrase white power happens about eight seconds into that video. So let's say the president didn't hear it or he missed it. Once again, if your 10-year-old kid posted something and you said you didn't hear that, you might believe the 10-year-old kid when he goes, no, I didn't listen to it, dad, right, mom? 
But what you have here is the president of the United States. So for the president of the United States to post something and saying, oh, I didn't hear that. I didn't see that. I just happened to post it. And by the way, that wasn't the only post. He also posted the, the picture of this couple stepping, I think this is in Missouri, stepping outside of their home uh, or maybe Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Stepping out of the home with guns as protesters yeah, passing by. He reposted that thanking these great people. So and, and by the way, juxtapose that with Mike Pence being interviewed on Face the Nation this weekend, um, where he's asked, you know, why can't you say Black Lives Matter? Just the phrase, just say it. And he would not. So once again, you know, African-Americans uh, can either go to the polls and do something about this or they can say, oh, Democrats take us for granted. And I'm not really thrilled with Joe Biden with what he did in the 1990s. And, you know, they can find their way to stay home. But you know, they have a decision to make. If you want four more years of this, then it doesn't even mean don't vote for Joe Biden. Stay home, because that'll give it to you. You get four more years of this if you stay home. Yeah. Now, Joe Biden has a big lead in the polls, and it really shouldn't be any surprise, shouldn't be any surprise because the president seems to me go out of his way of taking the most politically unpopular position on the two major issues facing the country, uh, the Black Life, Black Lives Matter movement, and there's overwhelming public support uh, for the Black Lives uh, Matter movement. And also, uh, Americans, by a large two-to-one majority, also think that the president is not uh, being cautious enough in handling the pandemic. Uh, so should, be any, should it be any surprise that Joe Biden is so far ahead? Well, it shouldn't be. But the other thing is, Brad, look, you're the master pollster. I mean, anybody that looks at those polls now, I mean, let's face it. I think the latest polls had Hillary Clinton up by 7000 percent. Right. So and we didn't exactly get a president Hillary Clinton. No, so we didn't. so and I don't know about you. I'd love to post that question to you, which is when you look at these significant leads to me, any Democrat who gets complacent about that or says, I think we're good to go. James Carville has been on the air saying, I know Democrats are afraid to say they're going to win, but you're going to win. Would you say that, Brad? I don't think I would. No, uh, I think you're right. Uh, there, Hillary Clinton did have a lead uh, at this time. And, you know, in fact, she was probably leading, you know, going into a week before the election. But one thing does trouble me. If you look at those polls where Joe Biden has a big lead, one thing that's uh, pretty clear is that the people who are actually voting uh, saying they're going to support Trump are a lot more motivated and committed to the decision than voters who are supporting Joe Biden. And I think that's Biden's biggest challenge is to uh, build a fire under his own supporters uh, to get them as motivated as the uh, uh, Trump supporters are. You, you are 100 percent correct. Trump supporters, every one of them will vote because they love that guy. Biden supporters are essentially going to vote because they don't want Trump back. That is a very different motivating force, and you're right. I don't think Joe Biden gets the motivation behind him um, that Democrats will need him to have, but at the same time, he also won't have the negative factors that Hillary Clinton had. I think a lot of people would say, you know, attack Joe Biden if you want, but he's kind of a nice guy, and I just don't think he's got the negative factors playing against him as she did. Uh, let me uh, ask you uh, one more question in the short time we have, and it'll have to be a short answer. Uh, Tammy Duckworth, the senator from uh, Illinois, continues to be in the conversation for Joe Biden's running mate. What can you tell us about her? 
Well, I, I've known Tammy for a long time, interviewed her a lot. Look, she's she's incredibly intelligent. She's a war hero. Uh, if, if people aren't familiar with her, Google something, which essentially is she took down this guy who was faking his injuries from the war. She takes him down in this eight-minute video before Congress, which is an amazing thing to see. I think she would be a, 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 an incredibly qualified president, given her military career, almost gave her life for this country. The question is, does the vice presidential pick have to be an African-American? You know, some say yes, some say no. I'm not sure, but I don't think Tammy Duckworth is a bad pick. I think she's a very strong pick. She's an incredibly bright woman. Paul, thanks for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. We're always glad to see you. We hope you can come back because there'll be a lot to talk about in the next four and a half months. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. In this half hour, we are going to have our provocative progressive political panel. Our guests on the panel today are Bina Venkatraman, uh, who is the editorial page editor of my hometown newspaper, the Boston Globe, and progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. But before we get to the panel, uh, let me talk a little bit about the racial situation in this country. No one is waving little red books, but the United States is in the middle of a cultural revolution. Since the tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, Confederate statues have fallen faster than Donald Trump's job rating. The revolt against racism is a product of structural changes that are shaking the foundations of American society. The Census Bureau estimates that a majority of Americans will be non-white by 2044, which is less than a generation away. Social change brings conflict. Older white Americans, led by Donald Trump, who retweeted a white power video this weekend, are fighting a rearguard action to maintain the status quo. They may be able to slow change down, but they won't, able, won't be able to stop it. Time marches on. Now, let's get to the panel. Uh, Bina, thanks for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I enjoy your editorial page immensely at the Boston Globe. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, when all we are in the middle of, I think, a turning point in relate race relations uh, in the United States. Of course, I thought that in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected, and I was apparently wrong about that. Uh, but how do you think this is all going to shake out? Are we on the cusp of, you know, being living in a more socially diverse, tolerant society than we have been? It certainly seems like we're poised for more profound social change, more profound political change around systemic racism than we have been in the past. I think even looking at events like uh, the shooting um, in Ferguson and the protests that followed the killing of Michael Brown in, in Ferguson, or uh, especially looking at events like the election of Barack Obama, which I think in some ways gave people a sort of complacency about race relations and systemic racism that date back to the founding of this country. To elect a black president, I think to some people was a signal that 
racism just didn't exist in America anymore or that it was a problem that had been solved. The box had been sort of ticked. And I think what's unique about this time we're living in, of course, the killing of George Floyd was brutal and horrible and vicious and caught on smartphone camera by a teenager brought to the American attention at a time when a lot of people have been in their homes practicing social distancing during a pandemic, their eyes locked on this video, taking the time to really internalize what it means and then putting themselves, their bodies in the street in despite the contagion that's spreading around the country and around these cities. And so I think what you see is that there's an awareness that's much broader than it's been in the past. White Americans, non-Black Americans, I'll say, I think have been woken up to what Black Americans have known about this country for generations, which is that in many ways, not just policing, not just the criminal justice system, but our economic system, our financial institutions, our political institutions, our civil civic society is all organized in a way that uh, disadvantages uh, black Americans, that in fact uh, makes them the enemy of progress or how we define progress in this country. I do think that we have the opportunity. I'm not the kind of person who likes to predict the future. I, I did write a book called The Optimist Telescope. I'm an optimist, but the way in which I think about this kind of situation and moment we're in is to say that we have an incredible opportunity to seize this moment to make real change. Whether we do that, I think, is still to be written. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, the uh, Your book is The uh, Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Uh, should we be optimistic? I mean, we're we're enduring racial turmoil uh, that a level which we haven't seen since the 1960s. We're in the midst of a horrible p pandemic. The economy has collapsed. Should be should we be optimistic? So I the way I define optimism, it's a form of of being practical in these times, which is to say that if one can't imagine a better society, if one can't think about a society in which we actually address these issues of systemic racism, in which we actually create better public health awareness, then it's not going to happen. So it first requires us to be able to imagine a better future, be able to imagine making a real difference, be able to see our own agency and our own role, whether we act or don't act, in making that reality happen. And, and yes, I, I am optimistic in the sense that I believe that we all need to engage in the actions that shape that future for the better, that we need to make those decisions. I think the way that I'm not an optimist is in the sense that I'm sitting back in my armchair thinking everything's just going to be rosy if no one takes any action or I can just let let it be all up to the 20-year-olds in the streets right now. I think we all have to be thinking and reflecting and using whatever levers we have to make change to see these changes actually realized in society. And, and that's the form of optimism that I think is a more engaged, active form of opti optimism. and actually like a verb, an action to, to be an optimist, uh, which is to say to, to act for the sake of the future, whether that's for climate change or to overcome racism or whether it's to secure a healthier society. Mark, are you an optimist about America's future? You know, I, I, I'm a guarded optimist, I guess you could say. I, too, shared in the hope um, of the Obama presidency. As you know, Brad, um, you know, as, as we've spoken about, I 
canvassed door to door with with my wife when we were first married and um, right before we married in 08 uh, in Pennsylvania and then in Ohio in, in 2012. I felt that it was very inclusive of all walks of life and it really felt you know as I was coming of age politically that this was the future and this is what we were going to see and uh, you know I, I just like many others had the rudest of awakenings um, the day after the 2016 presidential election and I think that really shook me to my core like many others and you know I find it hard at times especially with this news cycle that we're going through to be optimistic but um, as a father of two young girls, I see the magic that that these children hold and, and the future that is in front of them. And I know that it is possible. And I know that if we come together, just like we've seen in, in, in these absolutely horrific, um, the horrific killing of, of George Floyd and the fact that everyone saw it as being a so... I think um, eloquently pointed out and was spot on that it really, we had the time to have an attention span for it. We really saw it for what it was and how awful it was and reacted by coming together in a way that I really, I, I don't think we've seen since, I guess you could say the Women's March right after um, Trump was elected. And, and it, but, it's, but it was even more than that because it's been sustained and now it is putting pressure on elected officials, which is how we, we make that change and make it come reality. Now, the House has obviously passed that police reform bill in, in George Floyd's name. The Senate is dragging its feet after really you know putting forth legislation that was kind of just window dressing. So we'll see if, if anything is to come of it. Um, but if it's not this administration, then it may be a reason that this administration is forced out so that we do get an administration that will enact changes that Americans are clamoring for. So um, I guess, like like I said, to, to summarize, a guarded optimist. Guarded optimism. Uh, Bina, let me ask you a complicated uh, question in the uh, three or so minutes we have until we go back go to break uh which george uh joe biden is going to have has a tremendous challenge ahead of him if he wins um hopefully he will but if um racial relations the pandemic uh the economy climate change what do you think joe biden's biggest challenge is going to be well, you're absolutely right. He's going to face a lot of challenges. And I think one thing that Americans need to be aware of, uh, just have a real sort of reflection moment, get real moment, uh, is that this this administration's actions have done damage that is going to take a generation to undo in some respects. Now, there's some social and political change that can happen rapidly in response to crisis. And we saw that, of course, after the Great Depression with the New Deal, for example, after the Dust Bowl as well. So I think part of it is going to be to, to figure out how to stimulate this economy in a way that actually reinvents and reimagines this economy and society in a way that is more equitable, creates uh, more justice, and addresses big problems like climate change. Okay. I'm going to have to stop you there, Bina. We have to go to break now. Uh, we're going to a radio break. We'll still be here uh, for our Periscope Twitter viewers. Uh, our guests are Bina Venkatraman, uh, editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, and progressive political activist Mark Amaldi. 
Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. On our panel today are Bina Venkatraman, editorial page editor of the Boston Globe. Previously, she was a journalist for the New York Times and served as a senior advisor for climate change innovation in the Obama White House. She is also the author of a book, The Optimist Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Her Twitter handle is B-I-N-A-J-V. Joining Bina on the panel is progressive political activist Mark Grimaldi. Mark has served on get-out-the-vote operations for several Democratic presidential candidates, including Joe Biden. Uh, Mark is also involved in campaign finance reform and philanthropic uh, efforts for cancer research. His Twitter handle is Mark J. Grimaldi. Uh, Let's turn to the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Bina, uh, Joe Biden, uh, the real clear average uh, poll showed Joe Biden with a nine-point lead nationally. Uh, I think that's wonderful, but um, as a pollster myself, I know how fragile uh, they are. Uh, But there's no denying the fact that he's been doing very well uh, while being completely invisible. Uh, He's made only three or four public appearances in the last three months or so, uh, but it seems to be working for him. Uh, Bina, my question for you is, uh, does Joe Biden have to run a more active campaign than he's been running in order to beat Donald Trump? Or should he leave well enough alone and stay hunkered down? You know, it's amused me to hear so many people, particularly Democrats and progressives, calling for Joe Biden to talk more. So first of all, let's not forget as much respect as I have for the former vice president that he is he is a little bit gaff prone when he is on the campaign trail. So maybe it's for the best that he's not out there every day um, just from that point of view. And I do think it's early. We all remember the October surprises in 2016. And so let's not get ahead of ourselves. But I do also think James Comey. Right. And but, you know, um, Looking at the polls now, what seems to be the case is that this election is turning into a referendum on Donald Trump's handling of COVID-19 and his handling of uh, the protests and really the surfacing of consciousness around structural racism, systemic racism in the United States. And on both of those counts, on the pandemic and on the issues of race in this country, he's shown himself I think to people across the political spectrum, save a few hardcore believers, that he really is incapable of leading this country competently. He's incapable of protecting the public's health through a crisis, uh, incapable of bringing people together um, at a time of discord and discontent. Uh, And really, these are opportunities. Crises are great opportunities for leaders. Never forget, you know, not that I'm a big fan of Rudy Giuliani, but when he stood there at the ashes of the World Trade Center after 9-11 and sort of solidified his role as a strong leader in crisis, uh, this president has done the exact opposite. He squandered every opportunity he has had to bring this country together to show strong leadership. Uh, So I don't think that the election hinges so much on every word that Joe Biden says, or even Joe Biden's policy agenda, I hate to say. I think that 
a lot of people are going to be looking at the swing voters that exist are going to be looking at uh, what Donald Trump has done and failed to do. And I think a lot of them are going to be saying Joe Biden looks like the better option. You know, if uh, a, a picture uh, is worth 10,000 words or whatever that metaphor is, uh, Joe Biden, in the few times that he's appeared, he's always wearing a mask. And the president, when he goes to Oklahoma, Tulsa, or Arizona, isn't. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes to the large majority of Americans who feel very threatened by this pandemic. Mark, do you think uh, that uh, Joe Biden has to run a more aggressive campaign or just leave well enough alone? I mean, as we get closer and as there's debates, I do think, you know, he'll want to be seen in certain swing states and certain communities addressing specific um, local issues in those communities when possible. That said, I actually think considering we're in uh a worldwide pandemic and unfortunately due to Donald Trump's failed leadership this is the most dangerous place in the world basically to be right now except maybe Brazil um, it's I think uh, an issue of being safe first of all um, and second of all when he has gone out I thought he's always seemed very genuine and really interested in the issues you know when he met with a protester and was kneeling and speaking after um, you know the George Floyd protests or he's talked with um, people about COVID um, or recently when he spoke about um, the just idiocy and just absolute danger of repealing the Affordable Care Act during a pandemic. I, I think he's been spot on. Um, I don't think that right now I would make any big changes. Um, I think that the acronym KISS, Keep It Simple Stupid, is is, is right now it's working. Um, you also have this huge story uh, of... Trump and Pence either knowing about this uh, Russian bounty on U.S. soldiers and doing nothing about it or that they uh, and lying about it or that they didn't know because Trump doesn't read his daily intelligence briefings or because they don't trust him with this information. It's just another story of his failed leadership. And I think for Vice President Biden to contrast that with how things were run during the Obama administration and how he would run a Biden administration is exactly, you know, what can be done uh, from a, a virtual safe distance, in my opinion, because it's a national issue. Um, as you get to those local issues, I do think his presence will be um, more needed. But I agree with you 100 percent, Brad, just simply showing that you care by wearing a mask it's such a common sense thing to do, but it contrasts so greatly with President Trump's failure to do so. And as we see time after time, Dr. Fauci, um, the top health expert in the United States, is is begging people to do this. And then he's got Mike Pence right next to him who will refuse to say to do it and will refuse to put the mask on during their most recent briefing, which was the first one in two months. So I, I think at this time I would I would continue to do what the vice president is doing with a look to getting more local when needed. Okay. Uh, Bina, let me ask you about another uh, current news story. Uh, Facebook. Uh, Facebook has been under siege for the past few, uh, few weeks uh, because it's refused to uh, censor uh, or mark or something, uh, offensive racial, uh, tweets, uh, some of which coming from Trump supporters, 
but uh, in the last couple of weeks, they've lost billions of dollars in advertising and sponsors uh, because of their policies. Uh, but Facebook seems to be on the verge of uh uh, bowing to uh, public opinion and uh, having a, you know, censoring or editing uh, some of the offensive posts. What do you think about that? Well, so it looks like they're going to do two things. One is to try to identify some of these hateful uh, posts on the platform on Facebook, as well as uh, advertisements, and also try to identify and uh, label when they decide that those are newsworthy. So if President Trump tweets something about white power, which would not be past him from what we've seen recently, uh, if he puts something like that on Facebook, excuse me, uh, the presumed new policy of Facebook would be to mark that and to indicate that it's hateful, to flag it uh, for, for readers, for people, audiences who are there. And I think what you're seeing here is an example of money talking. So Facebook yeah. has Lord to do this for years, to deal with its issues around hate speech by civil rights groups, uh, by groups like Black Lives Matter, uh, has been asked to deal with issues of misinformation, outright lies and perversions of the truth on its platform. Um, even, you know, we know dating back to the 2016 election, the Russian funded misinformation campaigns propagated on, on Facebook. And so what's happened, what's different now is that a number of corporations, more than a hundred corporations, have responded to as part, you know, partly as a matter of corp good corporate practice, partly responding to where their customers are, to Black Lives Matter, and they have decided to use their advertising boycott as a way to move Facebook in the right direction. And now those a number of companies uh, are planning to expand that. The boycott applied in the U.S., but it's now looking to expand. Uh, the companies are looking to expand in Europe. And so combine that with the employee dissatisfaction at Facebook around these policies, and you're finally seeing some responsibility. How far they'll go, what all they'll label remains to be seen. And, and just to be clear here, this is not an issue of the First Amendment, right? There's always, there have always been limits to freedom of expression when it involves inciting violence, when it involves uh, uh, a yelling of fire in a crowded theater. Right, absolutely. And so Facebook has not been subject to the same standards that, for example, news organizations like the Boston Globe have been subject to. And this is just just the beginning of bringing technology platforms into a more constructive role in our democracy. Thank you very much, Bina. Uh, that's all for uh, Deadline DC with Brad Bannon today. Uh, thanks to our guest, Paul Lisnick of WGN-TV in Chicago. Uh, Bina Venka Trauman from editorial page editor of the Boston Globe and progressive political activist, Mark Grimaldi. I'm an emergency medical technician. I've worked a lot of vehicle crashes and too often alcohol's involved. I've seen so many lives lost. Some were drunk drivers, some were just people going about their day. All because someone was drinking and said, I'm okay to drive. It's not okay. Police are cracking down on impaired drivers now. So drive sober or get pulled over. A message from the Michigan Office of Highway Safety Planning. Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. 
So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and full plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com.